0: Good morning again. So, there was a very silly TV show several years back, um, and I'm not recommending it right now. If you haven't watched it, spare yourself, and do not tell people I recommended it. But it does have some teachable moments. It's called The Office. Unfortunately, others have watched it as well. In one of the episodes, the party planning committee at the office has had a little too much drama. So the boss puts two of the guys in the office in charge of the party planning committee. And first, they forget one of the female employees' birthdays. And they don't realize it until she comes in the day after her birthday and is very upset about this and somebody else tells them, so they try to make it up to her, and one of the guys who's especially dense emotionally, he gets brown and gray balloons for the birthday, and he blows them up just a little bit, and he, he gets gray and brown because he's, uh, black and brown, excuse me, because they, um, they match the office carpet, <laughs> right? And then he puts up a sign, he puts up a sign that reads, it is your birthday, period, <laughs> And he says, that's more professional than having a happy birthday exclamation point, And it's not like she had cured cancer. <laughs> All right, so there's a point to this. One, of, one or two of you guys here might say you'd be fine with that. You'd be lying. But, but generally, no one's okay with that. That doesn't cut it, Right? And here's what one writer says that I find really compelling. What matters to all of us, beyond just the fact that we exist or just the fact that it is our birthday, is the explicit confirmation it is good that you exist. How wonderful that you are. What we need over and over, above sheer existence, is to be loved by another person. That's why it is your birthday, does not cut it. We need to hear something more in the spirit of happy birthday and it's good that you exist. I would like you right now, if you would, I haven't ever done this before, to turn to the people beside you and say it is good that you exist. Will you do that? Great. Great. That's great. All right. If you had to say it through gritted teeth or if you had to hear it through gritted teeth, you deal with that later. We're going to have a part of our service called Passing of the Peace where you can deal with that, right? Sometimes we have to deal with things first thing on Sunday morning in church. Here's what I want to explore this morning is a question. How far back have you been loved? How far back have you been loved? Did you become loved because of something you did? In other words, was it when you began to contribute something to the world? Is that when you began to be loved? Now, today, uh, many of you will know this, it's called Sanctity of Life Sunday across the United States. It's a Sunday when churches across denominations reflect on the theme of the value of life. Including many Anglican churches, Catholic churches, Lutheran churches, uh, churches across the the board. I want to say a couple of things to start. The first thing I want to say is this is not about condemnation. It is absolutely not about condemnation of anyone. Um, I... Katie got to talk to her mom just before the service, so um, several years ago, probably eight years ago, Katie's mom shared with her that she had had an abortion when she was a teenager. And she had lived with it for a very long time, carrying it as a sense of guilt and shame until finally she came to a place where she was able to share it with someone. And that, that beginning to share it, was what enabled her to come into a sense of freedom. You see, with all of us, whatever sins we have committed in our lives, those sins in one sense are very much just between us and God. God is the one who forgives. Yet at the same time, we know deep in our being that we are connected to each other. And so while we need God's forgiveness, we also need others who will affirm God's forgiveness for us. This is coming into the light. And so, just like Julia, my mother-in-law, came into the light and has experienced mercy and freedom and now ministers much of her free time outside of work, ministers with women who have had abortions. You too, whatever sins you have committed, the message of God is not condemnation over you, but it is mercy. It's come into the light and receive mercy. And I would also say to you that two of the people who are most used in Scripture are people who will confess to have killed. And I use that term knowing how loaded it is. But David and Paul, the Apostle Paul, King David and the Apostle Paul, both explicitly recognize that part of God's mercy and ongoing use of them is that he has forgiven them in the depths of their sin. So this is not about condemnation. It is about mercy. Two, this is not a right-wing political issue it is not. As a friend put it to me, abortion is pre-political. What that means is that Christians have advocated for children and for women long before our country even existed. Hundreds, thousands of years before this country existed. Abortion is not a right-wing political issue. Some will wonder why we're talking about this and not other social issues, and what I would hope that you would hear in this is that this one, the value of life, covers the gamut of social issues. It's when we as the church and as Christians get boxed in by the world's politics that we end up picking and choosing social issues. Don't get boxed in. Don't live into one party's way of recognizing social issues. The church, in following the Lord Jesus, should have a vision for all issues related to the value of life, whatever stage of life that may be. So, even though this may have political implications, it's not primarily political. So, back to the question that I asked How far back have we been loved? And the answer is from before you were ever conceived, you have been loved. And what I hope that you also hear in this is, uh, this is not just about the way that we um, see some potential being, it's the way that you see yourself. And it's the way you see every other human being. It's the way that we see the mentally and physically handicapped. It's the way that we view people of other tribes, tongues, and nations. This is how we all look at each other and look at ourselves. Our Psalm, Psalm 139, says, For you formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. God sees people before they are visible before they are seeable, before they are visible or detectable by our technologies, no matter how sophisticated they become. And this visibility that we have before God gives meaning and value to our lives, especially in the midst of trials and suffering. He sees you. God speaks these words over the prophet Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And the Apostle Paul feels the freedom to speak these same words over himself. This is not just for the prophet Jeremiah. He speaks of God as the one who set me apart before I was born and who called me by His grace. That's that's you. God set you apart before you were born and He called you by His grace to be His child. That's you. That's me. Julian of Norwich is the first woman we know of to have written a book in English, or a published work in English. And she wrote uh, following a deathly sickness in which she experienced a vision of Christ in his sufferings. And following the vision, she was restored to health, miraculously. And here's one thing that Julian wrote. Just as we shall exist without end... So too we were treasured in God, hidden, known, and loved from without beginning. I want to read that for you again. Just as we shall exist without end, so too we were treasured in God, hidden, known, and loved from without beginning. That is you. How far back have we been loved? Was it when you became useful in some way? God's answer is that you have always been loved, not just since the beginning of your life either, since the beginning itself. No matter how accidental a life may seem to us, it is not accidental to God. Do you believe this about yourself? Do you believe this about all your children or, the, or others that you know? This is what gives us the fullest dignity. And it gives us dignity not only, it gives dignity not only to children in the womb, but to every human being. It's the foundation of dignity. And Christians do not need to be insecure that science has somehow put this into question. If anything, science has only affirmed it to the extent that it can. So in a recent article by a neuroscientist, The author says that the question of when life begins is not unanswerable. The answer is just difficult to accept. She says that for the last 150 years, ever since we could use a microscope to watch the moment of sperm and egg fusion, there has been broad scientific agreement on when life begins. And she quotes the new president for the International Society for Stem Cell Research, which is not, by the way, a Christian organization. And this person says that from the biologist's point of view, I'd need to say that life of a mammalian organism begins at fertilization. That's conception. And she con- the author concludes with this, we are not struggling with the scientific facts of biology, facts that no one credibly debates we are struggling with the far more nuanced question of what makes a human being a person. When does a human life become worthy of living? She says that in order to ease our conscience, we've tried to substitute the question of when does life begin when what we're really asking in is what, when does a human life become worthy of living? And this is where it becomes more obvious that the issue that we're dealing with is not simply about abortion. It spills over into many other areas of our lives as human beings. Consider, for example, that we're not only asking today when human life starts being worthy of living, we're also beginning to ask, when does human life stop being worthy of living? When is it okay to end it ourselves? As we age and we contribute less to the world, do we still have value? In both cases, whether it's at the beginning of life or at the end of it, end of it more and more, whether it's conscious or unconscious, we are starting to define human value based on what we contribute to the world. Now there are lots of things in our modern world that we need to consider carefully when it comes to end-of-life care and life-sustaining measures. Look, we're doing a lot in our world sometimes to sustain life further than we might need to. That's a big conversation. We're not going to be able to cover that here. But if we begin defining our value as humans based on what we contribute to the world, we're going to diminish our, all of us. All of us. So I, I just want to make sure, in one sense, I just want everyone to hear this, whether you agree with it or disagree with it. I want you to at least see the difference between a Christian definition of value and the world's definition of value. I want you to see the rub. The world says that our value is based on what we contribute to it. Christianity says that we're loved from the beginning before we are conceived. And our value is based on the one who created us. It's not based in ourselves. It's based on the one who made us. And this, by the way, is also the foundation of the good news of Jesus. Jesus. This is the gospel, what Christians call the good news of the world. God's love for us and his salvation is not based on what you do. You cannot save yourself, you cannot make yourself worthy of his love. It's based on his own willingness to love you first. So, how far back have you been loved? From the very beginning from before you were conceived. And I want to make one more point, and I'd love to spend more time on it than I'm able this morning, but in light of having been loved, Christians are called to the deepest kind of sacrificial love. In light of having been loved, Christians are called to the deepest kind of sacrificial love. It is for issues like the one that we're talking about that the church is made. The church is made for this. So in 2005, a Christian historian wrote a book called When Children Became People. When Children Became People. And he examines the culture at the time that Christianity emerged. And he said there were three concrete practices that were widely accepted at the time across the culture. One was abortion. Another was exposure, meaning abandoning unwanted infants in the wilderness. So the first responsibility of a Roman man when a child was born was to examine the newborn child and determine whether to keep it. And if he decided not to keep it, the child would be left in a wilderness to die. The third commonly accepted practice was pederasty. Christians vehemently rejected all of these, but they did more than speak against these things. Listen, the church had no political power. The church today is spoiled. We think the avenue we have to influence the culture is political power because we've had it. Maybe for not good reason. The church had no political power. All they had was sacrificial love. So, what did they do? They rescued women and children. They rescued them. The church became the place where such powerless people were cared for, where children were adopted, widows or women in need were financially supported and provided with the family that they did not have, having been abandoned. Much of the growth of the early church was from vulnerable populations, not from people of power. Christianity had no political power, but what they did have was sacrificial love. And this is the church's calling in the world, not merely to preach Look, this is part of what we're called to do, what we're doing right here. It should start every week, but this is not all we're called to do. The church's calling is to act in sacrificial love based on the love that's been given to us. How do we do these sorts of things at Church of the Lamb? Well, I hope that you'll help me answer that question. But a couple of things. We we need to think about how we do it inside our church. And then we need to think about how we do it outside our church. Both of these are vital. One thing I'll say about inside our church. We should be a church that encourages families to have as many children as they can. And I mean it. Listen, when you hear that a couple is pregnant again, don't ask, do you know how this happens? Do not. Do not say what do we do to help be excited with them we should not discourage the growth of the church by children they're a gift why would we stop receiving a gift why we prioritize the care and formation of children at the church level but also in all our homes We need to be present to children in ways that our fast-paced world is not necessarily set up to support. Listen, all of the advances of technology in our world that adults are using and addicted to, they don't bless our children. They need us. They need our presence. They need us to set those things aside so that we can be with them and look them in the eye and say, it is good that you exist. That's what our children need from us. That's what they need from all of you in the church. Listen, children are not just important to the parents and grandparents. They're important to all of us. Now children will not always ask us to care for them. They will not ask us to form them in the faith of Jesus. And it will rarely seem like the most urgent need in the church. But we have to prioritize it. I know it's trite. They literally are our future they are. Are we putting everything we've got into them? Renee right now is secretly saying amen and like about to throw her hands up in the air. Listen, in a little while I'm going to make an announcement. We need someone to volunteer on Fridays in our children's ministry that takes place um, down at the Parsonage. We need someone to um, uh, volunteer on Sunday afternoons with children. These are wonderful ways where not only are you investing in children, you're being formed. Because you're asking the Holy Spirit to help you so that you can invest in them. I want to challenge us that one of the best ways we can love sacrificially is by preparing ministries in our church to receive well families and children who come to us. That's not selfish by pouring into these things internally. It's not. It's building up structures so that we can form children in the faith. Now, I also hope that there are um, pregnancy ministries like AvaCare and Eastgate Ministries that are in our area. And I hope that some of you are investing in some of those. Serving in those ministries. But there are ways that we need to grow as a church to be able to do these things well. I I don't know all the ways that God would call us to serve outside our church. I hope that families that you know, where the children are not growing up in a home of faith, that that you would pray about ways that God might use you to bless that family and to bless those children. Invite them into the life of our church, even if it's you picking up those children. Much of evangelism happens through children. And so pray about the ways that God would use you. But we need to find ways, Church of the Lamb, to grow internally in how we're ministering to children and then to find, ask God to give us the wisdom to know what we are to do outside of our body as well. But the two questions for this morning, are you believing that you're loved? whatever sins you've committed, that God knows you, and it is good that you exist, and are you loving sacrificially? Amen.